Hi, this is Tamsin Granger. This is Dan Abuha. With Tamsin and Dan read the paper on Sunday, April 24th. Beautiful spring day, 2022. 2022. Mm-hmm. Yes, very nice day. Spring may uh, get here eventually anyway. Uh, ultimately. I shouldn't say anyway. It's coming. April's the cruelest month. April's the cruelest month. Okay. Well, it doesn't seem too cruel today. No. It seems uh, all right. All well, right. A couple days ago, I think we had snow, actually. For a few minutes. Yes. Uh, yeah, and it's been a terribly rainy April, but you're going to give me the April showers thing. So, whatever. Uh, we're almost done with April. Um, so, we have been out and about uh, this week, you know, given that uh, the weather's improved a little bit. We went to see... Uh, a, well, that wasn't uh, why it was. we were out. No, we were out because we jump on things. <laughs> You know, we uh, there's a musical called Harmony, um, which uh, it's kind of funny. Um, so it was reviewed at last uh, Friday, New York Times, right? And a week uh, from this past Friday, and we had heard, at least I had heard, a rumor of this musical coming about, and it was considered. I hadn't. I I, I had, but, but I it, saw I saw I saw there was this musical Harmony. Yeah. I saw it was by Barry Manilow. Yeah, I thought of it as the Barry Manilow musical. I've been reading it. I'm sure it was some jukebox thing. Yeah, sure. Right? It was just a, it was a random mean. stringing together of his songs. Which would be the last thing in the world. Right. So we I was not even going to read the review. Right. Except I sort of looked at the picture. Yeah. And then I read the caption. Yeah. And it was about some singing group. Right. From like Germany during the Nazi era. Yeah. So I was intrigued and more intrigued. When it turned out to be quite a good review. Yeah, it was an excellent review. Uh, so it's a musical. It's, it's not a, a, a jukebox musical at all. It's a musical about this group called the, the Comedian Harmonists, who, according to the program, were the toast of Europe from the late 1920s through the early war years uh, in Germany, in Nazi Germany. And uh, was... Um, Fascinating. I mean, uh, I mean, first of all, you're right. The Times gave a great review. Would you like to say critics pick? It was a critics pick. And I'm going, what? Really? And it's at this theater, which is theater that I'm not terribly familiar with. with it's the National Yiddish Theater, Folksbean, which is at the Museum of Jewish Heritage. And you're imagining it must be some terribly small theater and has a limited run. It only runs until, you know, the second week of May or something. So it's a three or four week run. And we're saying, should we actually see this? But they say that this group, uh, which a bunch of singers doing a comedy act while they're doing it at the same time in harmony, uh, is great. And that the, the play itself is pretty darn good. So, positive And, and it's based on a true story. It's based on a true a story. A real group. People were wild about them. They right. traveled the world right. performing, and then they were kind of shut down by the Nazis. Right. It, 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 matter of fact, they they were in Carnegie Hall. I think they started the, the play with one of their performances, Carnegie Hall. Uh, so uh, a lot to take in here. Uh, it's a fascinating story. Uh, I, I enjoyed it. Did you enjoy it? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, look, it, it, it's not uh, going to replace the sound of music in terms of Nazi musicals. But, uh, and it's a little bit rough around the edges. I think there were a couple of scenes. Yeah, it wasn't perfect. It wasn't perfect. Yeah. But it was certainly an interesting story. Yeah. And the I music. Mean, the, the deal is there were, it was a group of six or seven guys, right? right? And uh, at least three of them were Jewish. Right. 
And uh, then one of them was married to a Jewish woman right. or something. And uh, so when push comes to shove, the Nazis say, you cannot perform with these oh, yeah. Jews oh, in your group. It was the and inevitable. The group falls apart. Right. Uh, inevitable catastrophe and, you know, the whole Nazi Germany thing. But, yeah, uh, but the, uh, the music was uh, quite fun. Yeah, I mean, you almost could distinguish to some degree between the act that these fellows had, which is a certain musical uh, form, and then, you know, the musical itself takes shape with the characters singing about things and singing to each other as musicals do. And, uh, and that music, and that music was good. Uh, I mean, we should mention that even though we keep talking about the members of the group and this being the focus of it, the real star of it is Chip Zine. Chip Zine plays, uh, let's just say, an older version of one of the members of the group. And he's, in a sense, the narrator. Who is mm. putting everything in perspective? Retelling the story, and you know we've seen several plays with Chip Zine. He's by now, you know, as I like. Oh, we just more, saw him in Caroline or, or, or Change, right? Yeah. But he was, you know, the original Baker in um, what do you call it? Into uh, the Woods. Into the Woods, a million, a zillion years ago, and uh, he does some comic bits. He does some real singing, uh, and uh, he's quite good. And talk about real singing! Some of these guys could really sing. Yeah. Wow. So the, 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 the story is that, that this one guy, an unemployed actor at the time, yeah. Harry, yeah. Um, puts an ad in the paper for yeah. singers yeah. and interviews all these people in his flat. His flat was on the uh, Steuben Rauchstrasse. Right. Okay, I just like to say that because my father's name is Stupid. Okay. Um, and um, I didn't pick up on it, but yeah. Yeah, but uh, so uh, he was inspired by a group that was popular in the U.S. It's some kind of jazz group uh, mm-hmm. called the Revelers. Yeah. According right, right. to our friends at Wikipedia, and, um, and and you know it sort of resonated with me a little bit because uh, you know uh, at Princeton. Uh, one of the popular things was to have these uh, vocal groups that would sing a cappella. Mm-hmm. And of course, when we were there, most of them were all male groups. Uh, but it must have, you know, that kind of thing must have grown out of uh, sure. this uh, harmonizing yeah. tradition that um, well, look, the it, harmonists were. I would say it was yeah. uh, one of the better things uh, we've seen in the last year or two. Yeah. I really enjoyed it. Uh, much more, well, more than some of the more Ballyhood productions we've seen. And uh, another revelation was the theater itself, the whole area itself. Because the theater, it turns out, is a new building, I've been told, the Museum of Jewish Heritage. And it's a lovely... Well, it looked new, didn't right? it? Yes. It and it's a lovely it's, theater. It's and down it, in the Robert Wagner Park. Right. Which, which is, is part of the whole Battery Park City it, it, Park it, it, system. It's near thing. where you get the Staten Island Ferry. I mean, it's, yeah, it's, yeah. when you say and, down, you mean down. And, and there's nothing down there. Except the wind. Except park. Except the 30-mile-an-hour wind. And it's, and the office buildings or whatever. And we're not familiar with that area. So I drove in and I thought, well, I have to find a restaurant. Yeah. So I look up and find one restaurant that's remotely near um, the theater. Right. And uh, there are others scattered around, but it's not even clear they're open because of, you know, COVID still and so on. Uh, Things have kind of dwindled. And uh, we find the restaurant. It's not easy to find. It's like tucked underneath some stairs. You had to talk me through. I was on the phone. And, and, you know, and it was not uh, impressive decor. It was like white plastic chairs. But it had the most fantastic view. Yeah. Because you're looking out over the water to Lady Liberty. Well, you know, you know, I, I hate this cheap it, but it's true. Those Liberty Mutual ads 
where the, the guy sort of fumbles through it and says liberty bibbity and you know whatever and they say well there's a series case. there's all kinds right, of liberty right yeah. that's what this view is you know you're standing it's, it's there by the barrier looking at the lady of the harbor that's exactly actually the food is. was good the food, the was, food good. was fine yeah and we, so we had a delightful dinner yes. we were safe it was a it's Seems to be always freezing cold when we go into Manhattan, and we were, you know, but we were safe from the winds. We had a very nice dinner, well, and again, then we went to this very uh, fun, you right? Know, and it's not play. a small theater; it's like a four hundred seat theater. So, and it's as comfortable as any theater we've been in. in a long well, it wasn't time. huge. Theater. No, but the, look, a it, normal it wasn't Broadway, teeny tiny, like a normal Broadway theater is eleven hundred yeah. seats. Okay, so this is four hundred. But we've been, you know, the Atlantic Theater we were in was like two hundred seats. I mean. It, it, it's not that tiny. All right. So we had a, a good time and uh, we got on this quickly uh, and we're glad we went. So there and, we go. And we did talk to a few people and mention where this uh, play was. And they said, oh, yeah, I've been there. I go to lectures there or right. whatever. Then to a few. Right. It's well, also where Fiddler, right. the Yiddish version of Fiddler on the Roof. That's where was performed. They, most, they got most of their notoriety. But yes, apparently. So that was events. that was fun. That was a fun night. Yes. Well, speaking of the fun, uh, then on my own, not on my own, because a friend invited me, uh, I went to a Met game. I went to City Field, the real deal, uh, and watched the, your New York Metropolitans uh, take on the San Francisco Giants. Uh, and, uh, you know, as it happened, I had excellent seats, and it was great. It was great. <laughs> I mean, it's a heck, it's heck to get to and to get home from. But well, if you live in Pennsylvania, if you live yes. in Pennsylvania, yes, uh, <laughs> it was a hall. Yes, it was a hall. Originally, I didn't have to go. I mean, even you know, to get out of the parking lot, twenty eight thousand people. It's a good crowd, but not a huge crowd. And it's but whatever. It's it, that sounds. I sound like an old man complaining there. It was uh, really a lot of fun. It was really great. And uh, of course, one of the attractions is, and I made sure I saw the new statue they have of uh, Tom Seaver. And this right. has been promised for some time. Tom Seaver being. The franchise is what his nickname is. He's, he's, <laughs> and, and many people have said, you know, there are very few teams in which there's one player that uh, stands out far above anybody else. And it is Tom Seaver. And, they, you know, the, the old owner said they were going to build a statue and they never quite got to it. And, uh, and now you get a new owner with a little money and there you go. Uh, and it's, uh, it's a nice, you know, impressive statue. And, um, you know, it's funny. Uh, when we were talking about it later, I said, you know, I think, how big is it? I said, well, it looks like it's kind of life-size. Turns out uh, it's a little bigger than that. The, the Times headline about it read as follows. Tom Seaver's statue stands 10 feet tall, just like Seaver. Which <laughs> <laughs> is about the way I was seeing it. And I was wondering, uh, you know, uh, how widespread is this notion of statues? The, 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 the fellow who uh, did it, the sculptor, a fellow named William Burns, uh, has done four other statues, and uh, they happen to be the four statues outside the San Francisco ballpark. Uh, and interesting to me, because I used to be a big Giant fan, there were the four heroes of my youth in baseball. Uh, that would be William Mays, Mays, William McCovey, Juan Marichal, and Orlando Cepeda. All four of them. They were all in the lineup at the same time in 1962. Mm-hmm. And uh, they all have statues, and they're Seaver-like statues. They're huge, and some of them are more complicated because they have Juan Marichal with his leg kick and stuff like that. But there's a lot to talk about there. But in terms of widespread, uh, turns out this is a thing. You know, you read about statues getting torn down these days, not so much them being built. Well, it turns out, as of 2014, I'm sure there's only more since then, 
there were 70 such statues at uh, at baseball stadiums okay. uh, honoring players. The Cardinals, for example, have a whole bunch like Stan Musial, Roger Hornsby, Dizzy Dean, Lou Brock, Bob Gibson, etc. People really go for these. Uh, the Philly has uh, Richie Ashburn, I think. Uh, Seattle, even Ken Griffey. So um, I guess you see more and more of these. And the cost, uh, it doesn't cost a ton of money. It costs a few hundred thousand dollars. It's not uh, necessarily <laughs> prohibitive. Um so it's it's kind of uh, a thing. And even some schools are getting into it. It was just announced that University Oklahoma, Oklahoma University, uh, is honoring uh, one of its former football players. They're putting up a statue of Baker Mayfield. Really? Yeah. Already? Yeah. <laughs> you know, so I don't know. Well, you know, statues at uh, arenas go back, you know. There's a tradition. Yeah. And, uh, but I mean, you know, um, but I have to say that uh, I, I just want to say, first of all, I'm glad that he's 10 feet tall. Mm-hmm. I don't mind sculptures like that being larger than life. Yeah. When they're smaller than life, it's there, a little creepy. There are some. I think, I think, really? I think the St. Louis you know, ones these are kind of mini me ones or, yeah. right. you know, they make me uncomfortable. I don't know why. Um, anyway, and, you know, I mean, uh, of course, uh, the Greeks uh, really pretty much worshipped their athletes, mm-hmm. you know. And uh, you remember that old story about how they actually had people made a living by collecting the sweat off of athletes, famous athletes' bodies. You know what? I didn't remember. And selling it. it. I didn't remember oh, that old I'm story. I'm sure I've told you about that. It, w- it was not um, a high-level job, right. actually. But they were, you know, athletes were greatly revered. I mean, in, in fact, uh, the word gymnasia. Yeah. Gymnasium yeah. comes from the word to exercise in the nude. Okay. Okay, specifically. Hmm. I don't know what they called the exercises places where you wore clothes, but hmm. um, gymnasiums or that. So, which brings to mind a story. And the Romans had many sculptures of uh, people, around, of heroes around the... Um, you know their baths. Mm-hmm. Remember the Roman baths, and uh, and also their uh, gymnasia, because you know these were um, pinnacles of uh, development to aspire to. You're working out, so someday you're gonna look like one of these guys. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, reminded me of a story of my buddy uh, Hendrik Christian Anderson, mm-hmm. um, the uh, you know American expatriates sculptor. Whose biggest claim to fame was, uh, you know, uh, having some sort of relationship with the writer Henry James, mm-hmm. and uh, he got a commission to do a um, sculpture for outside um, a um, arena in Italy mm-hmm. of a famous uh, ball player who yeah. shall re- remain nameless. This is back in the day, like okay. 1911, and. Uh, he does this sculpture, and uh, Hendrik was renowned for these huge, you know, hypermuscular uh, bodies. Right. Um, you know, seriously larger than life. The marble um, superhero approach, right? Yeah. Um, before there was such a thing, and he, uh, but his, uh, you know, it was supposed to, you know, the figure he was doing was based on a particular um, soccer star mm-hmm. from the time, and uh, the. Uh, the subject comes by Hendrick's studio yeah. to check out the finished work. And he looks at it. And, of course, this sculpture is in the nude. Yeah. 
Of course. Because it's, you know, the, the concept of because heroic news. Because it's Hendrick. You know, it's a, yes. And because it's Hendrick and because it's Italy yeah. and the, the whole tradition of, right. you know, um, great uh, nude sculptures. And, uh, you know, the sculpture was called Il Giacatore di Pallone, mm-hmm. um, the ball player. And uh, he looks at it, the guy looks at it, and he says, well, nobody's going to believe that's me. Yeah. And apparently he felt that his um, uh, genitalia was underrepresented. Oh, really? And of course, I mean, there's a reason for this. I'm yeah. not saying he was, uh, you know, um, you know, puffing himself up, so to right. speak. Uh, but in general, if you look at nude sculptures, and uh, Lord knows I've looked at nude sculptures, um, you know, they're conservative in terms of proportions right. of various parts of the anatomy. You don't want something that's so extreme that it doesn't, uh, there's no sense of balance there and harmony, uh, shall we say. Yeah. Um, so that is just, um, not really sure how Hendrick resolved that. Well, but, you know, um, something yeah. like that did come up in the baseball statues. Uh, not exactly that. I think Stan Musel, for example, felt that. You know, the size of his nose was a little off and, uh, you know, some facial features. And, and they made some adjustments. I and mean, uh, the sculptors are able to do this kind of thing. But there, I think it was uh, Mike Schmidt who complained that the sculpt, sculpture uh, or the statue indicated a, a gap in his teeth that he had had fixed after he retired. And the sculptor said, you know, something, I'm not, I'm not changing it. Right. But nobody was complaining about, as you put it, the genitalia, which is a nice way of uh, referring to it. All right. Well, uh, there you go. So, uh, well, look, there's something about, uh, something to be read into the idea of uh, athletes achieving uh, greater heroic proportions if there's going to be statues of them outside the arena. That sort of adds something in my mind. It just shows that there is a, a greater celebration of that kind of thing than there was years ago. It's, it's, it's I don't know. It, it seems to me that uh, it's sort of a, an over-the-top well, yeah. a gesture it, of appreciation. I think we still need our heroes. Apparently. The tricky thing is um, who's allowed to be a hero. Yeah. Well, apparently sports is considered safe. Uh, you can do that and, uh, you know, you're probably on solid ground. Although I can probably give you a few examples where that may not hold up. Right. But, um, okay. So Robert Morse died. Robert Morse, uh, the actor... Who uh, we're we're Robert Morse fans? Would you would you call yourself a Robert Morse fan? Sure, sure. And he's kind of these. He's always been one of these very appealing actors. who's kind of an infectious smile. He's kind of a comic uh, turn, kind of ingratiating uh, manner. Uh, and of course, that's uh, that was on display in How to Succeed in Business Without Really Trying which uh, he did on Broadway. You know, I didn't realize I'd forgotten at least. Frank Lesser wrote How to Succeed in Business. Okay. And uh, then he did the movie. We saw the movie. And uh, I was watching another clip. He was great in the movie. And he, he, you know, look, he hams it up a lot. That's his thing. Right. Right? You know, it's a little Nathan Lane. But it it may be even more so. He's hopping around. Yeah. Um, And I know that, you know, the Times obituary was saying, well, he didn't have the career of somebody I thought he would have had. And he complained that all the... All the roles he might have been cast in were taken by Jack Lemmon and so on. But he had a real uh, career. Um, not only did he win the Tony for How to Succeed, but later in his career, he 
did a one-man show, a Truman Capote show called True, mm-hmm. which is a complete uh, departure from his earlier character, in which he was well, imitating he... Truman Capote, and he won the Tony for that. Well, he did seem to get frustrated being always having to be the short, funny guy. He, But, you know, he kind of was a short, funny guy. And I, I'm not sure what else he, he could he, do. He, well, well, look, we, you and I, just to complete his, uh, how people may have seen him, he also was, uh, I think it's well known that he was in Mad Men. And he, he played the patriarch of the advertising agency. And the, and the little sly joke there, Matthew Weiner put him in there because How to Succeed in Business was about an advertising agency. And it was about uh, yeah. an advertising man. And this brought him back to being an advertising executive. And he kind of padded around in this comic role. Um, and uh, so, uh, you know, he had a nice career. You uh, brought to my attention there was a movie called The Loved One, which the Times and others referred to (laughs) as saying a movie worth seeing, possibly worth seeing. What do they call it? A, a, uh, what's that called again? Cult classic. Cult 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 classic. classic. So we, uh, you know, taking your uh, view. Yeah, I actually went, I was reading the uh, obituary online and I read the comments. Yeah. Um, that people write in, yeah. and several people wrote in and saying, "Yeah, you gotta watch this. It's it's a, a terrific send up of both the um, uh, of Hollywood and the funeral yeah. uh, industry." Right. So, um, so I said, "Wow, this sounds intriguing," yeah, so and it had a star-studded cast. Well, uh, John Gilgood, nineteen sixty-five. John Gilgood, Jonathan Winters, and Milton Berle. If you can imagine them all being in the same movie. Uh, in a comedy. And Robert Morris. A dark comedy. Dark, So dark that it wasn't funny in the least. We watched it. I got through uh, half of it. You got through a little less than half of it. Uh, and uh, sometimes it's not really a good idea to sort of uh, drill down and try to uncover gems of the past like this to uh, further yeah, yeah. Uh, cement well, you, the reputation. you got to try because you never know. You, 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 you come up know. with some good stuff. But you're not even going to tell the story of when uh, we ran into Robert Morris? You know, I was wondering if we were going to get to that. So I, I, I think we f- told it before on the podcast. No, I don't think so. So uh, uh, do you want to tell the story or should I? I'll, I'll tell it because I can tell it very quickly. I can tell it pretty quickly. Okay. Really? No, go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. Well, I got to tell it from my perspective, yeah, which right. is funnier, I think. So you and I are walking along uh, in Central Park, and I'm going to throw a number out. I'm going to say it's 1980 or so, right? And uh, suddenly up ahead... I hear someone yelling. I don't even think it's 1980. I think it's 1978. Fine. So someone coming from the opposite direction, uh, this couple, I I hear the guy, uh, Tammy. I'm saying, Jesus, I'm in New York. Uh, Okay, fine. That was Tamson. I look up. Who's that? And I look up, and it's Robert Morris. (laughs) (laughs) Unmistakable. Unmistakable. And they're approaching it, and I'm saying, and as they approach, it becomes clearer and clearer. And I'm having sort of an out-of-body experience. I'm saying, Robert Morse is yelling, Tammy, Tammy, how you doing, Tammy? I say, what the, what the hell is going on? I mean, how could Robert, that's Robert Morse. He knows Tamsin. Tamsin never mentioned that she knows Robert Morse. And Tamsin, her reaction is, Bobby. <laughs> <laughs> How's it going? How's it going? And they're going, what the heck is going on? Yeah. And then he laughs. And we kind of laugh with each other, and then we pass by. And I'm looking at you and saying, what just happened? And here, you, you can now give your explanation to me. Well, actually, uh, somebody from my class at Princeton, who I had met when we were both working at Bloomingdale's, mm-hmm. um, was dating him. And, and, you, and she and, was with him. And you knew this? Yeah. 
No, I didn't know who she was dating. I, I didn't oh, know really? anything about it. Yeah. But uh, I, when I saw her next to him, I, I basically knew what was going on. I figured it out. Um, so, so that was funny. That was my brush yeah, with but, greatness. But, no, 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 no. But here's the great thing about this. She obviously got him, because he didn't know you. Right. You know, but she got him Say, just do this. See how she reacts. Yeah. And you were so cool about it. You didn't, you didn't get flustered at all. You didn't say, ah, blah, blah, blah. you just went, Bobby, Bobby, how you doing? And which leaves me just standing there with my mouth open, you know, like <laughs> yeah. what, what's going on? Yeah. The rube that I am. Hilarious. Yeah, it was hilarious. All right. That's our experience, that Robert Moore story. We don't have a story for everybody, but we have yeah. a Bobby Moore story. Moving right along. Yeah. Food. Yes. Illegally delicious? Probably. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, this was a story in the New York Times about uh, a couple of apps that are selling food. Um, they're food delivery apps. Uh, Woodspoon and Chef. And they're actually selling the food of people who are making uh, dishes in their own home kitchens. Mm -hmm. Okay. And uh, both of them, you know, advertise being, you know, uh, very interesting menus. A lot of them are, uh, you know, uh, very ethnic. Uh, very unusual, um, and because you know, it's uh, people from all over the world, largely women, although there seem to be a, a, quite a few men doing it as as well. Uh, many of them are refugees. Many of them are just you know people who have uh, perhaps no other way to make a living yeah. uh, without leaving their and, home. And the Times sort of touts it like it's great food, and 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 their customers are quoted about all this stuff. You know, I couldn't get by without it, right? So as I said, one is called. Um, Woodspoon, it's a yeah. three-year-old startup that mm-hmm. says it has about 300 chefs preparing food on its platform and has raised millions of dollars from investors, including parent company, the parent company of Burger King. Really? Yeah. Huh. Um, and so uh, there, um, and this is happening, I think, even in New York. It's happening, first of all, you can, in, in some states, it is legal to uh, prepare food in the home and sell it happens not to be in New York. In New York, you can sell baked goods, uh, but not, uh, um, but they, you can't be what's called a home restaurant. Okay. You cannot sell food made in your home kitchen uh, at, to people in your home or to take out. Right. Okay. Um, so uh, it's not, Legally allowed, uh-huh. um, says the founder and chief. If someone is on our platform and they're selling food they cooked in their own kitchen, that's against company policy. So they're kind of presuming that it must, you know, that it's right. cooked in a they're, they're turning legal a blind, facility. They're turning a blind okay? eye to this. But to be completely honest, ah. we think those rules are outdated. Yeah, that's not. Um, you know, let me. Can I? Can I just jump in here? If you're going to be completely honest, you say, we know people are breaking the rules. How about that? That's completely honest. Uh, There's also another app called Chef. S-H-E-F. Yeah. And they make it, you know, right on their homepage is all chefs, H-E-F-S, are food safety certified. Right. Unlike restaurants, you know exactly who's preparing your food. And so, so that's the way it is. If you go to the website, they'll have a picture of the, oh, the, oh, the person. Oh, the people preparing the food. Yeah. 
they you have a picture of the person, you know, their what, name and their menu and so well, on. What does it mean that they're certified? What does that mean? What does that mean? They don't really say. <laughs> oh, but they must have some certification uh, well, look, the, process. The okay? issue is that, you know, people who sell food and, and uh, like restaurants have to be safety inspected and get real certification, if you will. And I'm sure these people in our kitchens don't have that. Yeah. So it's just, but it's interesting that they're, you know, I mean, uh, Witspoon just seems to be rolling with the punches, you know. they Well, they, rolling uh, the punches and letting the Times write it up that way, which is kind of funny. I mean, uh, I think they're really leading with their chin here. Look, I, again, I, I could be easily convinced that uh, the area is overregulated and these people should be able to earn a living outside, out, out of their kitchen. I'm not, it's not like I'm rabid about them getting uh, regulated. But I think they probably are subject to regulation, and well, I think it, that's yeah. the question. I, I mean, mean uh, um, I remember when you were in the restaurant business, the people had to really gear themselves up for those health inspections and the like. It wasn't it, a small thing. Uh, they estimate, yeah. they estimate, Woodspoon, right. that 20 to 30% of the chefs on the platform are using licensed commercial kitchens. Which also says that 70% are not. Or not. Okay. Well, that's a big but he number. says they help home cooks obtain permits and licenses, yeah. provide safety tra- training, and inspect the kitchens. But ultimately, the onus is on the individual selling on the platform oh, really? to follow the rules. Right. We're ahead of the regulators. Mm. But as long as I keep my customers safe and everything is healthy, there are no issues. We believe our home kitchens are safer than any uh, restaurants. I'm sure, they might well believe that, and they might even be right. But uh, it's a little bit of a dicey thing. And so they do. They they actually do. Uh, part of the article shows somebody who is who was selling, you know, dumplings or whatever yeah. um, through these two through Woodspoon and Chef. Mm-hmm. And uh, he makes it very clear he's not, you know, he's cooking at home. Yeah, sure. Right? I don't doubt And uh, so uh, they, the writer of the article inquires with the chef about this particular guy. Yeah. And uh, the next day, his offerings have disappeared. Yeah. 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 This is, you know, this is what's called... Uh, I mean, it's dicey, but I, I got to agree. Dicey. There's a the pretty good chance yeah. that these home kitchens are a lot cleaner than most restaurants right, we but eat unfortunately, in. Unfortunately, the legal standard is in pretty good chance. But again, I, I, I don't care. I don't care if they're regulated, but I, I think if they are regulated, you can't say, let me be completely honest about this. They should change the regulations. <laughs> That's not completely honest. Completely honest is we're flouting the regulations. Uh, all right. Speaking of the law, since you want to get into the law, I, by accident, I ran across an article on Supreme Court cases and two of them on subjects that uh, we've been discussing. One is the, there was an article about a Supreme Court uh, decision involving uh, someone who's a, a citizen of Puerto Rico who uh, apparently uh, owed $28,000 in uh, Social Security uh, payments, which uh, generally are valid payments to people who live in the states of the United States. But in Puerto Rico, you're not allowed. You don't qualify for this benefit. It's called supplemental security income and has to do with some uh, disabled folks. And the reason that you're not allowed to get this, uh, you're disqualified, because Congress decided it it wasn't fair given that Puerto Rico has the benefit for many of its citizens of not being subject to federal income tax, something I I had no idea until just a few days ago. So Congress struck that balance, whatever the quality of that balance is, we don't have to get into. And what went to the Supreme Court is whether that's fair or not. 
or whether they're allowed to treat the people of Puerto Rico differently, given that they're treated differently in another way. And the Supreme Court didn't have much trouble with this, uh, except uh, for Sotomayor. Sonia Sotomayor, whose family's from Puerto Rico, said, you know, people of Puerto Rico shouldn't have to suffer this. Uh, uh, it's not qualifying for these benefits. But uh, the rest of the justices seem to be more comfortable. So, ev- so there's no federal tax? I, I don't know exactly. In- it, 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 it's widespread. I can't say that there's no federal tax on anything. But basically, there are people who move to Puerto Rico, particularly in, in certain industries, just to avoid income tax. You can be a United States citizen. You don't fuss rat because Puerto Rico is United States territory. You live in Puerto Rico and Puerto Rico, the idea is to give people an incentive to move to Puerto Rico because it's not the greatest, uh, most uh, prosperous place. They want more in the way of prosperous citizens. They live there. They don't pay federal income tax, which is weird to me, but it is the law. Um, Yeah, it's a lot to talk about there. Um, and the other thing had to do with a case about stolen art. And this is a weird coincidence. Um, we had dis- discussed uh, a case about a painting uh, that was stolen uh, or taken uh, by the Nazis uh, from someone who then uh, you know, fled the country. And uh, it was later sold. And the question was, who's entitled to the proceeds of that sale? Uh, this is the same issue. And it's the same artist. Camille Pissarro. Right. And, uh, but it's a different painting. Mm-hmm. And therefore, it's a different uh, legal context. Uh, and as I told you at the time, uh, my sense of these kind of cases is that, number one, the issue is, can a holder in due course who innocently buys a painting without knowing its provenance and that it was stolen in any way, do they get to keep the painting even when later someone emerges and says it was taken from me? And that is depends on the law of the jurisdiction, and that is a choice of law issue. And that's exactly what the Supreme Court says here. And they, they say in this particular case that it's being remanded to the lower court because the choice of law uh, exercise had been done incorrectly, and they'd applied the wrong law. But uh, it's funny that it was a Pizarro because we talked about this other case uh, with this other Pizarro painting, which apparently has also reached a resolution. Uh, and that uh, was covered the same week in the New York Times. Yeah, oh, I don't know why you handed it to me. I can, I can it's, a, it's a legal thing. All right, I can handle it. Yeah. Pizarro work seized by the Nazis will be sold. So we said at the time, it's the same choice of law issue. And again, if you buy a painting, you don't know that there's any issue with it. And someone later says, well, by the way, that was stolen by the Nazis. Do you get to keep it or do you have to give it back? In which case, you are out all your money. Um and uh, if people respect the rights of holders in due course, you don't have to give it back. Uh, that's what happened with respect to this other Pizarro work, although by, by dint of a settlement. A settlement was made, but uh, they really determined uh, that the, the, the person who bought it was very much in good faith, bought it from the New York dealer, had no idea that this was a, a piece of art that uh, the Nazis had uh, taken from uh, these people named the Kleiners um, and then uh, sold to pay some phony tax in Germany when they fled Nazi Germany. So uh, they were legitimately aggrieved, although this was many, many years ago, so this is several generations later. And uh, notwithstanding that, um, people came to the conclusion that, gee, if someone buys this a couple of owners later from a New York dealer and has no idea, they should be entitled to keep it. And that's the settlement that they made. And under many laws, uh, many states or countries' laws, that's the result you would have. Perhaps they determined that was going to happen there, too. So well, Yeah, so this one is going to be sold. 
And it, this uh, is going to be sold uh, for at auction. Yeah. So it'll be interesting because uh, the estimate is somewhere between five hundred thousand and a million. Right. But in the um, the other cases, they say ten million dollars. No, no, well that well that's the judge. Oh, the judge, the judge writing Elena the decision. Kagan. Elena Kagan. Yeah. Kagan. She doesn't. Okay. Yeah. And and she's not even writing it. Right. Her clerks are writing right. it. So, so they don't uh, know. you know. Um, They're making that I, up. It, it would be uh, th- okay. that may be a little exaggeration what, for the know, point. You know, what we call uh, that's called rigid. street value. That's the street value. <laughs> that's what they always right. say in the news. Street value is seven million dollars. Two marijuana cigarettes. Um, so there was uh, an obituary here of a fellow named Mikhail Vasenkov, uh, and why is he important? It turns out he was um, the person. Uh, who inspired the series The Americans, which was one of the great... The characters in the series. Well, he inspired the whole thing. I mean, the guy who, who who wrote it, I think it's Joe Fields' his name, Joel Fields, says that his situation and the situation of others who were in his so-called spy ring, this is a quote, was absolutely the inspiration for the series. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, what we're talking about is people who live in a suburb, I mean, I think it was a Washington suburb in the in the television series, and the main characters played by Kerry Russell and Matthew Reese. Um, in this, in the real case, Mikhail Vasenkov and some of his fellow travelers, as they're known, uh, lived in a two-story brick and stucco house in Yonkers, uh, and uh, they were working for uh, uh, a. Soviet agency called the SVR, the Soviet Intelligence Service at the time, uh, and they were there to gather information. Um, so it's a very the same time period as the show. Uh, yes, I believe like so. Sixties, yeah, whatever. yeah. Uh, it seems that way, and in fact, uh, there are a lot of parallels with the show. Um, so even to the point that when they were exposed, uh, they were going to be uh, traded for other spies or something like that and return to the Soviet Union. And this is very much uh, harks back to what happened in the show. Number one, uh, when he was arrested, uh, Vasenkov, he said he would not violate his loyalty to the SVR, quote, even for his son. And they left their teenage son behind in the United States, as of course they do in the Americans. And by the way, he still is in the United States. Um, his name is uh, Juan Lazaro Jr., uh, and um, he was studying piano at LaGuardia High School, and he later graduated from Juilliard, and he lives in New York, the son. Okay. What, ha- what happened to uh, Vesenkov is, um, Vesenkov, you know, confessed, but he also says, we never got anything of value. It's not like any real secrets were, were changing hands here. This is all inconsequential. Uh Again, harking back to the series, he was given a hero's welcome by Putin, who was involved in the security service at the time, and told he would be set up in a great Russian apartment and so on. He said, thanks, but no thanks. And he left. He said, I haven't lived in Russia for years. Mm-hmm. I speak Russian now with a Spanish accent. His wife is from Peru. Mm-hmm. And he went with his wife, and they went to Peru. Okay. And, and even now, she had a, they have a stepson. I guess it's her stepson. And, they continue, and he continues to deny that and she she always denied she had anything to do with it. And people doubt that because they have recordings to the contrary. But in any event, he says, this is the stepson. This is a quote. He says, my mother barely speaks English. She's going to speak Russian? The only Russian word she knows is vodka. So, uh, 
Who knows? But then it's pretty close. Pretty close to the Americans. All right. So one of the big crises uh, coming out of the COVID uh, era is um, employment. Right. Right. Um, having enough people to work uh, at various places, especially in uh, nursing homes. Mm-hmm. Um, they say that uh, more than 400,000 workers at long-term care facilities have left the profession, I guess, recently. Yeah. Um, and uh, nursing homes are closing down uh, because of the difficulty of running a nursing home and the uh, difficulty of staffing it. And one of the solutions may be robots. It's a shocking to me. Although I can yeah. understand why people would leave that job, I, I certainly do. It's a it's a tough tough job. Yeah. Uh, the, I mean, the, um, I guess what they say is uh, uh, these facilities have an existential uh, problem. People don't want to live there, don't want to work there, don't want to place their parents there. Right. Okay. So, and you can understand. Uh, yes. All of that. Um, so anyway. Uh, you know, it, one of the, uh, I mean, we're seeing robots all over the place, great animal robots, uh, etc. But uh, trying to develop um, robots that can ease some of this problem, not replace people, but fill in gaps mm-hmm. uh, in some ways. And uh, so the article starts off with, um, you know, uh, a uh, scientist, a professor of computer science at the University of Minnesota, um, asking a group of older people, you know, what, you know, what kind of things they, you know, would like, what do they need in the nursing home? And they said, stand up comedy. Really? They would love stand up comedy. And not just any comedy, but dirty jokes. Really? Yes. They miss the dirty jokes. Wow. I can really understand that because I think to to a large extent, one of the things that happens in a nursing home, and, you know, I did work in a nursing home in my teenage years, um, is that uh, you have grown people who are essentially treated as children. Right. And, uh, you know, some sometimes they don't know the difference, but a lot of times, you know, you, you may be physically uh, dependent mm-hmm. in a way like a child, but not mentally, mm-hmm. you know. And uh, so I, I, I can understand that resonating. So anyway, so this uh, writer goes to visit uh, the uh, lab of Dr. Khan, the uh, um, scientist, and meets uh, a um, robot four-foot-tall white plastic robot named Pepper. Wow. That's a good name for a robot, right? Yeah. With a tablet screen in its chest. And, uh, te- you know, Pepper turns around and says, so, you know, she's she or it is giving its spiel and says, so which one of you asked for the dirty jokes? I mean, this is just a demo. Uh, and then uh, they uh, then followed a risque joke about the robot's relationship with its charging plug and so on and so forth. And uh, the robot giggles and says, I went on a date with a Roomba last week, gesticulating with its arms, paused, totally sucked. Oh. Oh. Um, so anyway, so the, you know, there are various things that the robots can do. Uh, and they do point out that, uh, you know, robots are, you know, already playing a role and they can play a bigger role. Um 
getting us to take our medications, keeping us socially engaged, helping us if we fall and can't get up, uh, navigating getting food delivered to the home. Toilets will give you a check up a day and will be able to tell you if you're not taking your pills and if you're not uh, getting enough nutrition, well, yes. comes back to wastewater. Wastewater is <laughs> the key to everything. Yes, sadly. toilets. Yeah, you know, I think we really we got to invest in toilets or um, wastewater somehow, Dan. I think we really got to do this, right? Tell you if you have COVID. Um, yeah. So anyway, so the, the article goes on and kind of demonstrates in all the ways where um, robots would be helpful. You know, uh, they can they certainly can act as waiters. Yeah in the uh, dining rooms to bring people their meals. That doesn't seem too complex, but also they're being trained to reminisce, Mm -hmm. you know, to do, um, to, uh, you know, carry on a conversation where you will, um, uh, they will ask you about, it's called, I think, uh, reminiscence uh, therapy and uh, ask you, um, you know, bring up uh, memories of your past. Like, would you like to talk about your wedding? And they will be programmed with details about your wedding. Oh, okay. um, so they can have a conversation sure. with you. And, and then the article, of course, ends as do most um, New York Times articles. Yeah. Uh, you know, they, they um, do a test run uh, with uh, a woman who's just moved into a facility and uh, a robot they're trying out, and it just fails miserably. <laughs> I mean, it's just, it's just awful. They pretty much are saying that the, the robots are not quite ready. Uh, there's still a long ways to go. Well, yeah. So that was disappointing. I thought the joke was good. Yeah. That's what matters. Well, we, you know, we saw that movie years ago. Wasn't it called The Robot? I don't remember. Yeah. No, I should have looked this up before. It was a famous actor. Zeke encouraged us to see it. And he ends up, uh, his wife dies or something. He's living alone. And uh, somehow he has this robot who's supposed to um, help him in the home. And he actually develops this incredibly real relationship with the robot. Sounds very familiar, yeah. Okay. All right, we'll have to look that up. It's got to be better than The Loved One. Um, yes, it was. It was all right. So let's see if we can get outdoors while we're here. It's still light. All right. That's enough for me. Yeah. Uh, this is Tamsin Granger. And Dan Abuha. With Tamsin and Dan, read the paper. See you next week. Happy spring.